Welcome to Nobody Told Me. I'm Laura Owens. And I'm Jan Black. On this episode, we'll get a fascinating look at how our lives are constantly being swayed by small, seemingly insignificant decisions. Our guest is social scientist Brian Class, who studied how seemingly inconsequential actions have life-changing consequences. Brian is a professor of global politics at University College London and the author of the book, Fluke, Chance, chaos, and why everything we do matters. Brian, we thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me on the show. I'm looking forward to it. Your book is titled Fluke. So what's your definition of a fluke? Yeah, so normally flukes are are positive, and I'm taking a slightly wider uh, view of them, which is basically seemingly accidental or arbitrary, sometimes even apparently random events that are contingent. And contingent basically means that if something small had changed, the outcome could be radically different. So that's the sort of idea. It's these things that we don't necessarily always recognize, but that divert our lives or divert our societies in profound ways. So in your view, then, how has the contingency of timing shaped major historical events? Are there good examples you can give us? Yeah. So the book opens with a story from a couple that goes to a vacation in Kyoto, Japan in 1926. And the husband and wife fall in love with the city. And 19 years later, this seemingly you know doesn't matter. It's just a vacation for a couple. But 19 years later, the husband, uh, the man is named a- uh, Henry Stimson or H.L. Stimson. He's now the Secretary of War for the United States government. And he's in charge of the targeting decision for where to drop the first atomic bomb. And the generals all pick Kyoto, this con- this uh, city rather that he loved. And so he has to go to President Truman twice and try to convince him to take it off the list. So he does. And the first bomb goes to Hiroshima instead. And the second bomb is supposed to go to a city called Kokura. But as the bomber approaches, there's this brief layer of cloud cover. So they go to the secondary target, which is Nagasaki. So we're talking about, you know, 180 odd thousand people living and dying in in between four possible cities based on a couple taking a vacation 19 years earlier and the cloud. And the thing is like, you know, this is not that unusual. The more that you look at history and the more that you look at, you know, anything that's changing in our world, you'll see these kinds of things. And we basically write them out because we try to tell neat and tidy stories about the way the world works. And this is also true for our own lives, right? We, we always have a narrative for ourselves, And I think that the stuff that we write out is actually very important. This is where the flukes occur. And I think they actually do matter a heck of a lot more than we would often think. Why did you decide to write the book? I mean, this makes so much sense, but why did you decide to write it? And how did you go about studying it? Yeah, so there's there's sort of a two sides to it for me. One's personal, one's professional. The personal is that when I was about 25 years old, my dad told me the story about um, this this woman in Wisconsin in a farmhouse in 1905 who, it's a tragic story, she probably had postpartum depression, although they didn't call it that at the time. And she snapped. She had a mental breakdown and, and murdered her four children and then took her own life. And the reason this is in the introduction chapter to Fluke is because this is my great-grandfather's first wife, and he ended up remarrying to my great-grandmother. So when I was told this story, you know, I realized that but for this mass murder 119 years ago, I, I wouldn't exist and you wouldn't be listening to my voice. So that gives you a sort of sense of cosmic accident for your own existence, right? I mean, I'm just sort of this accidental outgrowth of this extremely 
gruesome mass murder in Wisconsin a long time ago. On the professional side of things, I'm a political scientist. And, you know, what we do professionally, this is true for a lot of disciplines in, in, in my world, is like you try to reflect reality back in this neat and tidy model of the world. Oh, if you just control these five variables, then like everything will turn out okay, right? And I never believed that. I, I always thought, look, the world's a lot messier than that. There's a lot more uncertainty and so on. And so the book was trying to f- simultaneously take aim at this really neat and tidy worldview that too many people have, in my opinion. And then also there's philosophy in it of sort of like, how should we live if we can think that these things actually are diverting our trajectories constantly? And so, you know, the book's a little bit of science, a little bit of history, a little bit of philosophy. Um, and it was it was a lot of fun to research and look into. And I, I went down rabbit holes. I mean, I read evolutionary biology and physics and all sorts of crazy stuff. And uh, it, it was the most profoundly interesting thing I've ever worked on in my life. And it, it changed how I view the world, which was pretty fun. It kind of made me feel like there's there's pressure, right? It makes me feel like, you know, there, there's so many different things that these little actions that we we take can have on how our lives turn out and, and more importantly, how the lives of so many other people turn out. How would you describe the role of luck in all of this? Yeah. So, I mean, I think there's what what we call luck is sort of, you know, the random things that are positive in our lives. And, you know, I I have this concept in Fluke where I say there's something I think of as the snooze button effect, which is just, it's a, it's a good thought experiment, right? So it's Tuesday morning, you, you wake up, you hit the snooze button, your life rewinds 30 seconds. You don't hit the snooze button. How do you, how does your life change depending on whether that occurs or not? Right now, I think that it inevitably will change. I mean, we don't know how you can never see the alternative pathways, but you'll meet different people that day. The timing of your relationships will slightly change. Now, maybe this will have big consequences. Maybe it won't. I think the thing that you're very astute to point to the overwhelming nature of it, right? Because I I quite literally mean the third part of the subtitle of the book, which is why everything we do matters. I mean, I mean that literally, I think everything that we do, like taking a sip of coffee, I think is changing our future. But the thing that's also really profoundly uplifting about that is that there's nothing that's unimportant about our lives, right? I mean, and, and and the flip side of this as well that I find really moving personally to think about is that because like the unbroken chain of events had to happen exactly as it did for me to be here in this moment, right? I mean, this mass murder is one of the parts of it, but also like everything in my life has gotten me to this point. That means that the worst moment of my life is inextricably linked to the best moment of my life, right? Because the two couldn't exist without each other. So when I have terrible moments or when I have really happy moments, they're causing each other. And the reason that's so obviously true to me is because everything that's good in my life, every joy I've ever had has been derived from a mass murder of children, right? So when you start to think that way, you're like, okay, well, that doesn't make it good, right? It's not, it's not a good event, but it has produced me. And so, you know, this is where the sort of overwhelming bit does come in that you, you never can anticipate the results of your actions, but they're not unimportant. And I think a lot of people in the modern world have this sense of like interchangeability, AI is accelerating this and so on. And the point I say is there's there's nothing interchangeable about you. Everybody is constantly sort of re, reproducing the fabric of the future with everything they do. And I find that a really moving idea. I thought it was fascinating when I was reading your book to think about flukes in the context of the pandemic. Hmm. And I'm wondering what lessons about flukes we can we can learn from that, because, you know, nothing happened as we thought it was going to happen. 
Yeah. So this is one of the ones I have. A, there's a line in the book where I say, you know, try to think of the most important person in the 21st century who swayed history the most. And and my answer to this is not, you know, Vladimir Putin or Donald Trump or Joe Biden or anyone like that. It's It's whoever got infected with COVID the first time. And we don't know who that was, but they affected the lives of 8 billion people for years. And had they not, you know, the world would be very different. And, and of course, on top of that, there's a mutation of a virus, <laughs> right? We don't know the full story of the origin, We, you know, whether it was a zoonotic transmission or a lab leak, whatever it is. I mean, it's beyond my, my expertise, but it's something where however it happened, a single person was infected first, and then the entire world got turned upside down. Now, the problem that I think we need to think about, and this is a lesson both for our lives and for our societies, is that we have built no slack into our systems. They're so optimized and interconnected that if anything goes wrong, the whole world shuts down when one person gets infected with a virus. Now, pandemics ex existed in the past, but they didn't spread so quickly, right? And so the lesson that I derive from this is that you know, if there's a trade-off between maybe 5 or 10% less efficiency, but a lot more resilience, then you should make that trade-off. And I think that's something that we often don't hear. We're always saying, oh, be more efficient, be more optimized. I think resilience is an underrated trait. And, and, and a lot of systems and a lot of lives are sort of at the absolute brink where if anything goes wrong, there's no slack to take it up. And the pandemic is one of those lessons where like the interconnectivity of the world is so great that a single virus can, can upend everything for everyone for a very long time. So then how can people better prepare for these unexpected events? Do you have any advice for that? Yeah, so I think there's a, there's a answer on the social level and the individual level. So on the social level, I think you just need to have a decoupling of things. So like one of my favorite examples of this is there's a South American electricity grid where they basically made regional hubs rather than a national network. And it was less efficient and it was more expensive. But it meant that when there was a blackout in one part, it didn't knock the entire system offline, right? It just was localized. And that principle, I think, is something you can bring into your own life where it's like, okay, so let's anticipate things that could go wrong. Now, we can't anticipate everything. It's impossible. But let's just imagine that something catastrophic is going to happen. How would I compartmentalize the damage? And I think that view, you know, it's sort of it's it's something that again, you know, my my grandfather, who was the the son of the the man who came home and found his uh, his family murdered, his advice to me was very simple, and it was very good advice. He said the the, the way to live a successful life is to avoid catastrophe. <laughs> and we we often don't have that sort of mentality, right? It's like it's it's often about how we can strive, and so it's like no, you know, sometimes the worst thing is catastrophe, and if you can avoid it, that is probably you're doing fine. pretty well. Yeah. So that's I, that that idea of resilience. I think that avoiding catastrophe mentality is one that we don't talk about enough. It's always about life hacks and sort of squeezing the last drop of efficiency. I think there's a little bit less uh, a le little bit less efficiency in in, in trade off with uh, avoiding catastrophe. I'll take that trade off. What do you mean when you say the story of a possible future event can cause that event to take place? Tell us more about that concept. Yeah, so this is something where, you know, if if you tried to say this in an economics, uh, you know, seminar two or three decades ago, people would think you were insane. But now it's become, I think, it's accepted wisdom. It's this idea that narratives drive human behavior. So the way that we decide to produce uh, sort of behavior is we have a set of beliefs about the world. We have a set of beliefs about our own lives, right? We have narratives about who we are and where we're headed and where we came from and so on. And those narratives are why we act. So if your narrative shifts, or if you have something where your perception of, of a story shifts, it can drive you to act differently. So for example, in the, in, you know, the economics world, there is a, a field now called narrative economics. And it's like, look, whether the economy is good or bad, if people think it's bad, 
it will actually be a self-fulfilling prophecy because they'll stop spending, they'll reduce their spending, and they'll you know there will be less investment and so on. So the story of a problem can actually produce the problem. And I think this is where, you know, one of the things that I think is so interesting as a, you know, this is for me as an author as well, is I've realized that people respond to stories. You know, if you just put data in a book, no one is moved by it, right? But that's true of all of us. I mean, we have these narratives that really do govern our lives. We're, we're, uh, there's a, a, an author named Jonathan Gottschall I uh, admire tremendously, and he has this line and, and the book title he has called The Storytelling Animal. And that's what we are. We're, we're storytelling animals. It differentiates us from a lot of other species. And so I think this idea that we're just sort of cold, hard data processors is wrong. We, we are people who are moved by narrative. And that's why the way that we depict or frame ideas is so central uh, to the human experience. Yeah. And at the same time, you have robots who are now replacing everything. So I'm wondering what advice you'd give to somebody who's worried about these kinds of changes that are going on at work. Yeah, I think there's a few things. I mean, one of them is like, you know, I can't tell you that it's not scary if you're if you're facing a livelihood that might be uh, eliminated. That's obviously terrifying. I think one of the things that I would say, though, is is first off that there's a lot of ways that humans can derive joy and pleasure and meaning from life, and they're not all tied to our work. And I think that's something that we often lose sight of because the, the mentality that we're told is basically to like increase the share of the world that you control, which often is through money and so on. And some of the things that I enjoy the most in my life, you know, walking my dog is free. So, and it, uh, it's that, that sort of stuff, you're going that. camping. <laughs> yeah. And so, you know, and it's, it's like also just like spending time with people you love, like those things are free. So uh, the, 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 the flip side of it that I would also say is, you know, I, I think that this reason why this is so potentially scary to a lot of people is because a lot of the way that we're told we make an impact on the world is through our work. And, you know, I, I think for, for, for me, for example, you know, I, I think that there's this idea of reshaping the future with, with what you're doing and who you're influencing this. I have this line repeatedly in fluke where I say, we control nothing, but we influence everything. And I, and I think that mentality is one that can provide some comfort when things are falling apart. I also think by the way, that, the question of what AI will do to us is going to force us to confront a question that most people don't think about, which is what humans are for. And I, I don't think we are for uh, productivity machines. I, I think that that's a, a means to an end to produce a society in which we can enjoy the pleasures of human experience and so on. But I think this will be something that will spark a really interesting debate in the 21st century of like, what is the purpose of a human existence? You know, if there is someone who is replaceable by a robot, that person might actually end up deriving more enjoyment out of life with a different path. Of course, they still have to pay their mortgage, so I'm not trying to be patronizing. You know, this is like, <laughs> or their rent or whatever. But it's 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 something where I just think there is some there, there's some potential upside to the disruption if we harness it appropriately. Do you think there's a lot of value in going back over our lives and looking at these small changes that occurred in our lives and how they? impacted them? Like the decision you made maybe on the spur of the moment to go to a different college than you'd planned on going to, or or going to a grocery store where you met your spouse or something like that, that if you hadn't made those small changes in your life, your life wouldn't be what it is today. Is it helpful yeah, so to, to, to sort of do a reverse journal on that? Yeah, no, I love this question. And, and, and there's, there's two things I'd say to you. The first one is 
that uh, this idea of regret when you look back at these pivot points is is sort of nonsensical because it would also it wouldn't just divert your trajectory in positive ways if you did it a different way. It would also divert it in negative ways, right? So all the good if you make a mistake in the past, the stuff that flows from that that's positive would also disappear if you hadn't made that mistake potentially, right? Because it's all causally linked. It's all part of the same chain. So I think that idea that that gives some comfort to me about moments that I regret, right? That they, you know, okay, they turned out in a certain way. I wish I'd behaved differently. I learned from it. Good. But also like, you know, it's produced this, this joy that I do have in this other part of my life. And that's fine. The, the, the second thing that I would say about that is I, you know, I was asked at one point, what's the most important fluke that you look back on your life and, and imagine. And, and, and the problem is, I think the answer is I have no idea. I think the point that I'm trying to make in the book is that we have an ability as as humans to go back in time and look at the very obvious choices that were pivot points, but there are constantly invisible pivots that we're completely oblivious to. And this is where there's a film about this idea, and it's it's not the best movie in the world, but it's called Sliding Doors, and it's from the 1990s with Gwyneth, Gwyneth Paltrow, and it's, it's it traces her life where she's trying to get onto basically a subway train. And in one version, she makes it by a millisecond, and the other version, she misses it by a millisecond. And her life totally diverges. Everything changes from this moment, right? Now, she's totally unaware in both versions of the story that the subway changed things. But her life has diverged. And I think this is constantly happening. These sliding doors moments, I think, are constantly happening to us. And we are just utterly oblivious to them. So I'm sure there's been moments where I've almost been killed and I have no idea about them. You know, a driver who fell asleep at the wheel and didn't, you know, woke up in time or whatever. And so that's the most important in my, moment in my life. <laughs> like those those ones right that I'm now. not aware of. And I, or yeah. like sleeping in for an, an additional 30 minutes, then you drive by an accident. and Exactly. You see that, exactly. yeah. It yeah. could have been you. Um, exactly. for, for somebody like me who finds decision-making really difficult, I thought that when you wrote about explore versus exploit, it was very interesting. So can you elaborate a little bit on that? Yeah, so this is this is the thing that I'm I'm working on the most after writing this book because you know it's like you know you, you write about these stuff and intellectually you sort of understand it, but it doesn't always translate directly into your own life. I mean, basically the the lesson that I would say is that when you confront uncertainty, which I think the world is just full of, right, and you you confront the possibility of having your life diverted by an infinite number of circumstances that you may or may not control, the answer to that is experimentation, right, exploration. And this is something where, you know, if you know exactly what the answer to a problem is, then by all means, answer it that way, right? So in other words, if you were to live in a place that had three restaurants and you tried all of them and you know that two of them are terrible and one of them is very good, then yes, go to the good restaurant, right? Yeah. <laughs> we don't live in closed systems like that. We live in, an exp we, we live in a completely uncertain world where we're navigating this infinite possibility. And in that uncertainty, experimentation will make you happier. And, you know, there's a great study that I, I, I found influential in my own thinking, which was um, it was a study from London where the tube network, the subway network, uh, shut down because the drivers went on strike. And these economists looked at the cell phone uh, geolocation data of all the people commuting in London. They were all forced to pick a, a new path, right? It was forced experimentation because they couldn't go their normal way to work. And more than 5% of the people stuck with the new path after the strike because they had never had to try something different. And they turned out it was either more efficient or they just enjoyed it more. Maybe they walked and they found it more pleasant. So, you know, I, I think this idea of sort of experimentation in an exploration in the face of uncertainty 
is something that has a lot of evidence behind it. It's also how evolution works, right? I mean, the way that we have these extremely ornate body plans that do you know amazing things to navigate the world, it's undirected experimentation. And I, and I think that's the sort of lesson that um, I've tried to incorporate more is just, you know, G Google Maps is a tool for the hyper-efficient way to get somewhere, not the best way, right? And it's based on the average. So, you know, you're not the average. It's, it's, it's an algorithm that's looking at the average of human experience based on the single optimization trait of the fastest point from A to B. Is that the best point from A to B? Probably not, right? So I think there's that, that aspect of, you know, the mentality of taking a little bit more exploration and a little bit less optimization to save three minutes or whatever is, is a, a viewpoint that I've tried to incorporate after researching and writing the book. What message would you have for people who are control freaks, who get very uneasy with change and just want to plan everything so that nothing goes wrong and, and, and life can't kick them in the butt? Look, I, I, I'm sympathetic to this because, you know, I, I look back at my life. I looked at my Google calendar from like February of 2020 and my Word docs from February of 2020, right before the pandemic, right? When everything fell apart. I mean, I had so many to-do lists, so many checklists. My Google calendar was full of things that I probably didn't want to do, but like might have been good for me in some career-oriented way. Um, I learned to let go a little bit, right? And I think this is something where when you accept that like you just do not control your life the way you think you do, and like there's a lot of stuff that is diverting your trajectory that is out of your control, other people's choices as well as these infinitesimal things that are changing your, your life plan and so on, you sort of internalize that like, look, you know, you just have to sort of enjoy the ride sometimes and enjoying the ride might actually be better for you. Um, you know, I, I, I have, it's sort of facetious, but I, I genuinely mean it in the, in the end of the book, my acknowledgements, I have a acknowledgement. The final one is to my dog. And, uh, and a lot of my ideas for fluke came when I moved away from the computer. I was frustrated. I was like, oh, I don't have any ideas today. I've got writer's block or whatever. And I just went for a walk. And, you know, it was, it was like by giving up that control and sort of saying like, look, it's not working today. That was when I unleashed the creativity because I wasn't thinking about it. I wasn't trying to force it. So I think, you know, that sort of checklist existence that I was living before, uh, it, it wasn't making me happier. And I also think it wasn't actually helping me with the things that I wanted to do. And it was just by letting go a little bit that that came. I mean, it's not to say don't strive. Obviously, everybody should strive to make a life that they feel happy and, and enjoy and so on. Um, but, I, but I do think, you know, giving up some control actually makes you uh, feel a little bit better about yourself and your life and your trajectory. And enjoy the ride. I mean, it's a very weird world we live in where, you know, here I am, the byproduct of a mass murder 119 years ago. You're listening to my voice. That's pretty weird. But like, it's fine. I, right. I'm i glad I exist. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, I, I have I hate to go dark here, but, you know, for people who have depression, I thought about this a lot in the book about how a lot of times they think that they don't matter and their actions don't matter. And so you have people who commit suicide because of that. So what kind of a takeaway um, should should somebody who is hearing this and maybe is depressed, what would you want them to know about why they matter? Well, I think, you know, the thing that's amazing to me is is we all get to be part of this unbroken line of chains of causes and effects dating from the Big Bang to whenever the world ends, right? And everything that we do is reshaping that future in, in ways small and big. I mean, the way that it's easiest to, to point this out to people where I think it's like bulletproof logic is without getting too graphic, the moment of uh, conception for a child, the second a child's conceived, if that is a millisecond difference, right, a different person is born. Mm 
So if you take if you take a cup of coffee and take a sip that day or don't, a different human comes into the world. Now that is true for everything. It's not like it's not like making a baby is somehow magical in terms of cause and effect. It's, it's true for everything. So when you speak to someone, you are changing their their life. When you interact with someone, you are changing their life. Now it might be small, but it sometimes adds up. And all of us have had that moment where you know somebody says something a little bit mean to us, and they probably don't realize it's hurt us but it's stuck with us. Or the flip side, they've said something a little bit nice and it's made our entire day way better when we really needed it. And the other people are oblivious to that, right? So for someone who's struggling with the idea that they're unimportant, it's just, it's logically false. I mean, I I think that the ideas that I'm talking about in the book are scientifically validated about cause and effect. The philosophy that flows from them is that you therefore are reshaping the future with everything you do. And to me, that is extremely empowering. And, you know, for me, I also think it's one of these things where it's like, we all are sold this idea that you have to change the world in some huge way. You don't, you know, if you make one person's life better, like fine, that's good for me. You know what I mean? That's like fantastic. that, that I think is, yeah. uh, is, is something where we can all do that. And, and so if you feel interchangeable or unimportant, uh, I, I think this is something where you just need to actually think a little bit harder about how you may have a profound impact on somebody else's life in a way that's invisible to you. You know, Brian, we always ask our guests, what is your nobody told me lesson? So what is it that nobody told you about the impact of flukes in our lives that you you had to learn the hard way or you had to learn through a lot of research and you'd like to pass on to others? I, you know, I think it's it's not from research as much as I think, you know, nobody, nobody told me. And I think, in fact, everybody told me the opposite that, um, that the, the the purpose of a life in in the modern world is just to be successful by the metrics of, you know, money and status, and like you know, it, it's something where obviously you know I'm an author, so I, like I I have I have you know a platform and all these sorts of things, but actually the stuff that you know has given my life meaning has not been that stuff, right? Like the the sort of the things that I think about that I felt really happy about are not tied to that. And I think that is where I was waiting for this book to come along into my brain. <laughs> and end up, you know, sort of trage- because, because seriously, when, when I started to think about these ideas, I started to think, you know what, like I am this byproduct of randomness. There's some aspects of chance I can't control. I'm just going to sort of enjoy life a little bit more. And I think when we have this idea that we have to achieve constantly, uh, it, it sometimes suppresses that. And so what, no, what nobody told me, I guess, is that, you know, it, it is okay to have a life that you just enjoy. And yeah. I think that's the, the most important lesson I would say uh, has, has shaped me from this book. Oh, that's fantastic. And we love the book so much. So where can people buy it and how can people connect with you? Yeah, so it's it's available, I think, pretty much anywhere books are sold. Uh, if you want to support your local bookshop, that's all good. Um, my newsletter is called The Garden of Forking Paths, which is a metaphor I use in the in the book a lot. And uh, I'm on Twitter at, at Brian Kloss, but I often tweet about politics. So if you don't want that, don't follow me on Twitter. Just go to my newsletter. <laughs> okay, what about your website? Uh, it's brianpkloss.com, and it's uh, Kloss is K-L-A-A-S. All right, great. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Brian. This has really been very, you know, educating and, and, and just yeah, it really inspiring the way you think about things, <laughs> yeah, you know? Yeah. yeah. That's what, that's what, what got me going was like, okay, little things do matter. And yeah, I mean, never get mad if you are 30 seconds late for, for something, if you miss an accident. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Well, thank you. And best of luck with the book. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me on the show. It was a real pleasure to talk to you. Pleasure to talk to you too. Our thanks again to Brian Klaas. He's, he's the author of the book, Fluke, Chance, 
chaos, and why everything we do matters. I'm Jan Black. And I'm Laura Owens. You're listening to Nobody Told Me. Thank you so much for joining us. <laughs> 